Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and today we're discussing value-based care in 2020. While this year's healthcare coverage was primarily focused on the COVID-19 pandemic, and understandably so, value-based care made some significant strides and tremendous progress this year. Our guests today are Mark Folk, Executive Vice President of Transformational Value-Based Care, and Rick Forrester, Senior Vice President of Value-Based Operations at Privia Health. We'll discuss the pandemic's effect on value-based care, analyze trends in Medicare Advantage, examine ways for healthcare organizations to support independent practices in the volume-to-value transition, and consider the future of value-based care in 2021 and beyond. I hope you enjoy the show today. Mark and Rick, I am thrilled to welcome you two back to the break room uh, to to discuss value-based care with me. so this, the predominant healthcare story of 2020 was, of course, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm curious, what was the direct impact of the pandemic uh, as viewed through the lens of value-based care? Hey, thanks, Morgan. Uh, this is Mark Falk. Uh, I've been with Privy now right at almost two years. I uh, came here. I'm the executive vice president for value-based care. I've got a couple of comments, and I'll ask Rick to, to add on to these, but engagement of patients is one. If you think about value-based care at its core, it's about access to patients, it's about how do you impact the quality of care of those patients. It's, we use the word quality, but it's getting patients to access the testing and things they need, especially in the senior space. But it's moving more and more, as, you, as I think folks know, into the commercial space as well. And then it's engaging that patient into their, into their care. So one thing that I'm very proud about, and I'll say this with, with Rick on the call, is what Rick and, and his team and others have done this year as we had this tremendous shift because of COVID, how we had to adjust our operations to think about how do we access and get those patients engaged in their care? This is Rick Forrester. I'm head of value-based care operations and basically responsible for success in all of our programs across the country. And yeah, I think as Mark kicked it off, there are a couple key things that COVID really sparked from a value-based care perspective. The one, I think, is just it really accelerated providers thinking around how to deliver care to patients. And, you know, with sort of ideas like telehealth and remote access has been on people's minds for the last few years. But I think we saw just an unprecedented acceleration towards rethinking the care delivery model. And how do you take care of patients when they're not inside your office? How do you think about their needs? How do you proactively reach out to them? And so I think, you know, especially for groups like Privia, in the second quarter of this year, we really needed to get proactive in terms of thinking about our patients who are most vulnerable during this crisis and how could we support them in their care from their home. I think that there's sort of a second broader point around the evolution to value-based care. And I remember in the April, May timeframe, seeing articles out there, you know, one side was, this is the end of value-based care. And then there was another article, which is, this is, you know, the acceleration of value-based care. And so you, you got everything in between. It was, it was a big moment. But I think the, the big comment I would say is, I think for provider groups, COVID sparked a, a need for stability or alternative ways of 
uh, really making money other than a fee-for-service business. And I'm reminded of the software businesses move from one-time purchases to SaaS or subscription-based services and how that stability and just consistency allowed uh, there to be a lot of value created both for customers and software companies. And I think you see a similar shift in provider groups where value-based care can provide more of a consistency and stability around managing a patient's care just based off of how the reimbursements are designed. As you both pointed out, the the COVID-19 pandemic certainly accelerated value-based care in some ways while exposing areas for opportunity and improvement in healthcare. So I'm curious, how was value-based care able to help smaller independent practices offset some of the effects of the pandemic and to be there for their patients? And to follow that, how did organizations adapt to, to support these practices and providers? People may connect to value-based care as a different payment model. Yes, there certainly is. There's some value-based care where there's capitation. And if you think about some programs that went through the pandemic, where they're like Medicare Advantage programs, where there's some capitation paid to certain providers, that was a godsend. It really was because you continued revenue stream. Uh, even though the, the patient visit volume went down, you had a continued revenue stream. And those those scenarios are very good. And it is something that it brought attention to that in the industry of the need of of thinking about a shift in, in payment logic. So I think that's one of the outcomes from the pandemic, pandemic that we'll, we'll see come about in the next couple of years is payment reform to think about impacts like that. But through the pandemic, it was still primarily fee-for-service. Medicare shared savings programs. Think about how large a, a percent of the population of that. Many Medicare Advantage plans, most commercial plans are still paid on a fee-for-service basis. So we, we had to think through what that impact was. You know, you, in the first question, we talked about in, impact. We didn't. If you, one thing we didn't mention was telehealth. Thank God it was able because it was a way to connect with patients. But it also was a godsend for the physicians as well because it was a way to continue to operate in that fee-for-service mentality and be in that fee-for-service mentality. Excuse me, in that fee-for-service environment and and be able to keep, for lack of better words, the lights on, keep staff employed. More importantly, stay engaged with the patients. Patients still had needs. They still have chronic conditions that need to be managed, et cetera. I cannot imagine if we didn't have that as a resource. You know, if this would have, if this condition happened 10 years ago, can you imagine what the outcome would have been to patients in that period of time? It shifted the entire thoughts of how we engage with the patients, but it also had a significant impact on how we're, how we're reimbursed. I think the overall point is that you know, typically a fee-for-service mindset is a reactive mindset. It's who are the patients who are coming into your office today, who are the patients are proactively reaching out to the practice for visits, whereas a value-based mindset flips that a bunch to say, how does the provider get proactive about engaging patients? And so as soon as COVID hit, you know, many organizations like Privia really had to immediately rethink and develop, you know, a little bit of a new approach, although there was really a strong foundation of of value-based care. And what Privia did as an example was a Healthy at Home campaign where we proactively 
reached out to all of our patients through all of the channels we had available, like phone or email, and really made them aware and educated them on their options for care uh, to ensure that they stayed healthy during one of these most important times. And I think that foundation of value-based care thinking really allowed us to activate these capabilities much faster than organizations who really were just waiting to see which patients called them uh, today or tomorrow. And I think that is a really strong shift in the way provider groups are thinking about it in the future. It's great that the industry was able to, to adapt quickly to help doctors help patients. Outside of an unprecedented pandemic, how might a partnership help independent practices transition to and then thrive in value-based care? I, I really don't know how small independent practices can do it alone. This is complex stuff. It requires a significant amount of expertise across a lot of different domains, whether it be technology, analytics, payer contracting, value-based care operations, and also requires a significant amount of resources to invest in these capabilities, which may not have the return overnight. It's a longer term game. And so I really don't know how groups can do it alone. And I think when we are out in the marketplace talking to groups, many providers recognize that. But then there are even groups who, you know, consider them medium or large size groups who have tried value based care over the last five to 10 years, had a level of success but have hit a peak of their abilities and capabilities and really need a partner to help take it to the next level, whether that is scaling the technology or data. Maybe it's even, uh, uh, you know, as a group, they were successful in one contract in Medicare Advantage, but now they want to get into commercial Medicaid, Medicare spaces, and how do you do that? And so I think a partnership or many partnerships, honestly, is required in this new world that we're in. Uh, Rick, one thing I'd, I'd probably add to that that you and I have been more involved with in the last year or so is really around advocacy as well. And this is a bit of a strange comment, though, but being a larger organization, you have the ability to influence more. When we talk to a senator or to a congressperson, uh, it is representing, you know, 2,500 providers in multiple geographies when we interact. And, and there's other organizations come us when we interact with AMGA and um, American Physician Groups and National Association ACOs. These, these types of organizations that, that do influence government, there is some uh, credibility in not just because we're 20, 2,500 providers or the number is today, but it's because of the expertise, the way we've organized, it, it's how we're present in the, in the industry. That's vitally important. And there are others like us, don't get me wrong, it's not just us, but it does help the downstream smaller independents, but it's good to have that voice. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I was struck this year by really the lack of 
organized voice that independent providers have out in the community. If you look at healthcare and involvement in some of these government affairs, hospitals are extremely involved and organized, and health insurance companies are very organized around these efforts. But small independent providers are very fragmented, and so there is really a lack of voice. There's a lack of data that can be brought to bear. And so this is where I think partners are really important. You know, even if you're not in some employment model, but you're organized with a larger group that can have a voice when it comes to these critical areas. You both make such great points about how partnerships, robust support and advocacy are so vital to independent practices success. Speaking of successes, the Medicare Shared Savings Program achieved $1.19 billion in savings. That's the program's greatest total net savings to date. So what would you say enabled and drove this success? Yeah, I think that a few things are happening here. So one, at the program level, CMS has been clear in terms of really ratcheting up the requirements and standards required of accountable care organizations to be successful. And yes, there is an element of the groups who enter and succeed in Medicare shared savings programs are probably confident and have a a track record of success. And I think you also have sort of, we're beyond the early years of value-based care MSSP. You know, the first few years were heavy on, we want to have a lot of participation. A lot of groups would enter it. Just, you know, I hope I win, but maybe I don't. And if I don't, there's no, no real downside. And I think a lot of that sort of low-hanging fruit activity is really gone. I mean, you need to do a lot of the fundamentals well, like quality of care is just one example. But it really, in this sort of second phase of value-based care, requires groups to step up their game, especially managing total cost of care better. And, you know, I can't speak for every group across the country, but, you know, for some of the top performers like Privia Health, we really focus on how do we take care of our sickest of the sick patients being proactive about getting them in for care with a primary care doctor and a whole care team to support their care. And we really emphasize access to that primary care doctor as the starting place for care to wherever that patient might need to go, whether it's a specialist or a hospital or whatever service they might need. We want to anchor that relationship with the primary care doctor. And I think that's you know, what you see in many of the top groups are, are great outcomes as a result, as it's related to things like primary care access relative to going straight to the hospital. CMS is saying, look, you can be in an SSB, but you have to migrate to downside risk. Brings attention, brings focus in the MA space. So I know your, your question is about MSSP, but the same thing within the MA, MA space, I can flash back a number of years ago when the STARS program first came out. And I'll, I'll kind of admit, I, I didn't quite grasp the, the impact of the STARS program when it came out. But 
as I reflect back, it really was genius from CMS to tie the two together. It helps us in, in selection from a patient standpoint. You now have a barometer to look at programs to think who's five-star, who's not five-star, those different levels. So it's really intriguing to think about what CMS is doing to help move the, or, the industry forward and why is that so important, commercial and others follow. So it's influencing downstream how we manage across the entire spectrum. But I, I would just add that to think about it. as you see things from CMS progress, you can think about that as a couple of years trailing, it starts influencing the industry. You mentioned there the relationship between the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, CMS, and, and the healthcare industry as a whole. So I'm curious, how is the industry progressing beyond fundamentals like uh, quality, like risk adjustment, and toward managing uh, more the total cost of care? There are a few areas which, uh, well, there are many areas where groups really should be focused on total cost of care. You know, I'll just give a couple examples, which we're thinking about. The first is really around clinical programs to focus on patients with chronic conditions. And so think uh, diabetes, chronic health failure, COPD, behavioral health being a big one. And patients really need additional support beyond just the normal course of care uh, for, for these conditions. And now historically, many groups have, have thought about these things in, in terms of, okay, let's, let's hire a nurse care manager, assign it to a patient, and you know, let's hope that that whole system works out. We're thinking about it a little bit differently just in terms of the entire patient journey around that care. And what are the different ways in which we can support them, which might include a care manager, but also might include additional services in, in really kind of specialty areas like behavioral health support? Or what are the ways in which we can um, use remote, remote patient uh, monitoring devices in order to keep track of patients' care when they're at home? So I think that chronic conditions is, is one major bucket. Another major bucket is thinking about the provider and patient's network. Who are the specialists and facilities that a patient is going to outside of the primary care and accountable care organization? And are those high value providers or facilities that we're sending our patients to? Historically, there's been very little, if any, data around that question, but we're seeing a massive shift in that availability of data out there to really understand, you know, what is the quality and cost of the groups that we're sending our patients to? And let's be very thoughtful about ensuring our patients get uh, the right care and the right place of care. So those are just two specific examples. One quick add-on comment to Rick's about the selection of who you're, who you're sending your patients to for the care outside the primary care offices. You can think about the, think about it from a quality and value standpoint, certainly, but there's another connection that people often miss is the relationship between that primary care provider and that specialist or that SNP where there's good communication. So if you have very strong communication, if you have an expectation with that specialist, as an example, down the line, that when you do a referral, they'll walk them into the office. This is good for patients. 
So if you have a condition that needs to be quickly addressed, you have that relationship and influence to be able to have that connectivity. So there is a bigger picture in that than just, you know, quality and cost. You hear us talk about value-based care. There's a human connection to the patient of a better scenario for them as well. Like the shift managing the total cost of care, another trend we're seeing is Medicare Advantage or MA enrollment increasing. I believe it's even doubled over the past decade. So what does this tell us about the future of value-based care? And uh, how can physicians adapt to accommodate this trend? Seema Verma recently in a, in a meeting talked about the growth of Medicare Advantage. At, at the end of this annual enrollment period, after January, what we'll see is that the total membership in Medicare Advantage will likely exceed 40% of all Medicare eligible. So it, it has grown. Um, I'm old enough to know I was back in 2008 when I was under pressure, and, I, and, I've, and I've been in the industry since it's grown from you know, 20% of the population now to 40 and, and looking like it might get to 50 um, in the next, you know, it's some pundits say 50% in the next few years. I don't know. But what I will tell you is this, is that what that's showing is that it's going to stay the course. It may continues to grow, not impacted by changes in the political winds, what have you. Be careful of those words, but the changes in the political environment. Um, so it has absolute stay in power. What it shows is patients want choice. They have options within Medicare Advantage. They have different plans they can choose that can meet their individual needs. So we as an organization and industry need to embrace that and think about how do we manage within that space. And another key thing about that is just like CMS and Medicare, it flows downstream. So the things we're doing in Medicare Advantage now, very good examples. Rick mentioned in some previous questions about um, remote uh, monitoring and things like that. CMS has allowed Medicare Advantage to start covering some of those things. There's been some discussion about social determinants of health. CMS has allowed Medicare Advantage plans to start trying to influence those and impacting those, but designing benefits for individual conditions. It used to be back in my day when I ran a plan, you had to do everything across the board for all members. So it was hard to say a specific type of patient that had a specific need, I had to offer that to everybody. So CMS and Medicare Advantage plans are evolving and it's just going to create more optionality for customers, and it's going to continue to grow. So we've got to keep our eyes certainly on the Medicare Advantage space. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I think it's growing really fast because the the benefits and premiums have become very competitive over time. And we talked about CMS really being a front runner when it comes to value-based care, and you might even precede that by Medicare Advantage plans really are on the forefront or lead of constructing really solid value-based arrangements with providers in mind. And so it's got to be a place that any value-based organization plays. Morgan, one other quick comment kind of on Medicare Advantage and its growth. Rick makes some great points. The other thing is just the design and structure. Years ago, Medicare Advantage was HMO. Think about tighter networks, you typically had a gatekeeper type model and people were not, you know, they just were uncomfortable changing commercial plans. The payers today are, are much more open to PPO networks, non-gatekeeper models, those type of things. And you're seeing the advocacy of that grow. So it's really helping patients, customers of their plans or patients of ours, being much more comfortable transition from a commercial plan into a Medicare Advantage plan. 
So again, more and more tailwinds for Medicare Advantage as you look forward. While we're on the topic, what are some of the innovations we're seeing from commercial payers in this value-based care space? Yeah, I think we're seeing commercial payers starting to get much more progressive in their thinking around value-based care, taking a lot of the lead from how they've performed in Medicare Advantage. You see this in the construct of the problem of the programs, which may have been a little bit sort of out of the box, you know, simple programs, not a lot of meat to them, to really much more progressive thinking about needing to prove significant value creation in value-based programs. I think we talk, we're talking to many employers these days in particular, and employers are really feel, feeling the squeeze of increased costs. I mean, it's an obvious point. And so they are looking to their payer partners and now increasingly provider partners directly to show that they can collectively drive a better value for their employees. And I think this just goes along with the same points before of it ain't getting any easier and the standards are going to be higher for success in these programs wherever you sit. And groups need to be ready and proactive about how they think about constructing and operating these programs. Hey, Rick, one thing I would add to that that comment as well is the fact that what we're seeing as a follow-on from Medicare Advantage and the commercial is the fact that more and more these days we're having very similar conversations, things about capitation, Think about how you take risk, the, the layers of risk that the organizations can take, maybe just on physicians, maybe you can take the entire risk bucket. But there's discussions that are beginning even in the commercial, not even in the commercial plans today that, you know, five, six, seven years ago were in the Medicare Advantage space only. So, again, you're seeing this industry shift toward value, which is why we believe it's so important. Rick, Mark, this has been a a really, really a wonderful discussion. Thank you both for your thoughtful, insightful responses. You know, value-based care's advances were perhaps overshadowed this year, but you all have certainly highlighted its incredible achievements. I want to close out the episode by looking forward. 2020 has certainly been a difficult year, to put it mildly. But looking ahead to 2021 and and even beyond that, what do you predict we'll see when it comes to value-based care? That's a great question. I'm going to answer that on a a very myopic way. What excites me the most is the impact on patients. At the end of the day, that's what we have the privilege to serve as an organization, right? That's why we're here. That's why we all come to work. That's why we support physicians, not just our organization within this industry. It all comes down to the patient. These value-based care arrangements we have across the board are impacting the quality of life of patients. I know from my experience in, in prior lives and here that as we do this, we're allowing patients to have access to better care. I talked about at the very beginning, you know, it's about engaging the patients. It's providing access to care. It's monitoring their, their, their conditions that influence them. All that is advanced. So at the end of the day, what makes me feel so good about what I do is I'm improving the life of those patients. They have a higher quality of life. They have a higher longevity of life. And these are the things that we influence day in, day out. To add on that point, I think there's really an opportunity for the industry to use this moment 
in terms of where we are in the evolution of value-based care combined with just what has happened in 2020 to really take us into a new era of patient care. And there are many things, but three, three specifics come to mind. One is the acceleration towards access to care through digital means. Provider groups need to have a strong digital front door, Sim- could be simply their website, but mobile, everything really needs to be very accessible and convenient for patients. And so a lot of groups are thinking about that. Second is home-based care, or care in the home. We talked about remote patient monitoring, and there's many other models in terms of providers or caregivers going into the home to take care of patients versus having to go into a care setting. I think we will see a very large revolution over a period of time where we rethink the traditional model of needing to come into a doctor's office for care. And then I think the third area is this view of taking care of the whole person, not just the medical condition. And I think this year, especially, we've seen the recognition of the need to address behavioral health and the mental health of our patients. And I think a lot of stigmas have been broken down this year. And I think that is very encouraging. And then there are areas such as the social determinants of health to really think more broadly about that patient as a person beyond just having an individual condition to say, what's their financial situation like? What's their home situation like? Do they have access to resources like food? What are the community resources around that patient to support their care? And so I think going into 2021, really encouraged about where the care of patients can go from here. That concludes our discussion of value-based care in 2020. Thanks again to Mark Folk and Rick Forrester for coming on the podcast today. And a big thank you to you, our listeners, as well. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on all things healthcare. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll see you next month for another episode of The Break Room. Stay tuned.